This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Geraldine, thank you for uh, making time to talk to me today. And uh, what I usually do is um, I ask people to um, identify an object that represents their journey as a leader and a learner. But also I ask you to introduce yourself because it's better for people to hear your story from your mouth than my interpreting your story, which I think is pretty, pretty impressive being a a barrister, uh, DVC research and a vice chancellor. That's that's a pretty interesting career. So Mm -hmm. talk talk to us about your your career and then perhaps you could introduce the, um, the object. Sure. So um, this is my 36th year in full-time higher education, and I even taught part-time before that. So um, it's been a long time. I first went into universities for a couple of years when my daughter was a baby and thought, you know, I'll go back into practice in law. And, uh, of course, that's not how it worked out, and I'm, I'm still here 35 years later and well into my 36th. So... Uh, you know, sometimes life doesn't turn out quite as you expect it because I thought I'd be, uh, yeah, back into practice and life would be very different. But turned out I really loved teaching. I loved the challenge of it. And, uh, of course, by then I'd had another child and uh, probably the scene was set in terms of practice was never going to work. So stayed in higher education stayed at the one university full-time for 19 years and I taught there, as I said, a couple of years part-time before that. Um, had a wonderful time. I mean, it wasn't easy with young children, and but the flexibility was great. And much it was much, much more than that. It was about the fulfilment of teaching. And uh, for me, teaching and uh, higher education is almost like a calling. It's something that we do because we love it. It's something that you have a passionate about and the ability to influence young lives and some not so young is just an extraordinary privilege. So I found it was something that was personally very fulfilling. Quite early on, I finished my master's and then uh, not long after that got into the PhD, which was one of the pivotal moments in my career was finishing that PhD, which is um, quite a while ago now, probably if I think back 23 years ago when I finished. Mm -hmm. And that was um, probably starting in higher education was the first thing. And second was finishing my PhD just, and third would be getting into management. So I had this wonderful career teaching, just incredible privilege, taught so many students that I have this running joke, I can't go to a function in Brisbane without somebody saying you taught me, but it's pretty much true. Mm-hmm. And you know what an incredible privilege that is. Mm-hmm. Then um, the opportunity to come into management came up uh, not long after I finished my PhD and then got offered a full-time position in management at the uni I'm at now, actually, coincidentally. All right. 
And then that started my full-time management career over three universities and then back here again as Vice-Chancellor. I had the opportunity uh, at another university to work as PVC research, then got recruited as DVC research and then VC. Um, coming from a HASS background in law, although my research was um, much broader than that, but uh, coming from a, uh, a HASS discipline background is unusual in the DVC's research, and I think it's a really healthy thing. Mm -hmm. But it, it, again, was a remarkable opportunity to learn so much more about the STEM disciplines, about science and health and uh, engineering, which is very strong here at my university. So it gave me this quite extraordinary breadth so that when I became a Vice-Chancellor, I'd had the learning and teaching background for many, many years. I'd had the research background. I'd had a STEM background vicariously through my researchers, not from my own experience, but then got involved in some of their research as well. And uh, I just think I've had this wonderful opportunity in universities and the opportunity to have an extraordinary career that wouldn't have happened had I stayed in law, uh, although I've kept my barrister um, admission. It was uh, very hard to get back in late uh, 2007 and it's not something you want to drop once you get it mm -hmm. back. So at the time I kept it on as a, you know, nice to have. I don't think I need that backup anymore. But um, <laughs> it's so many of us do keep our professional background going a little bit and I have to say it's very handy to be see having a uh, background as a lawyer because you use it probably every day to be really honest it's that systematic way of doing things mm -hmm. the logic the problem solving it's just been incredibly useful background so I think I've got the ideal background for a VC having experienced pretty much every part of what we do I was even a PVC engagement at one stage so I've had that broad experience so for anybody who's wanting to you know um become a, a VC and I hope there's lots of people who do it's um the best advice is you grab every opportunity you can and get get a breadth of experience so that's how I got to be where I am what, what was it like coming back as VC to an institution you had been um and in another role in so yeah. coming com coming back to uh USQ were you did that provide you with greater insights or you know, did people see you as you were rather than seeing you as you are? Yeah, no, not at all. So it was 10 years in between the two and um, couldn't have been more welcoming. The people who I'd worked with before, which was in the Faculty of Business at the time, um, was so supportive, welcoming. Um, it, it just was never an issue. And when I left, when I drove down the range from Toowoomba, I always had this feeling I'd come back. Mm -hmm. and I never thought about how it was just I just loved working here so much and I was so passionate about this university that when the opportunity came to come back it was the most wonderful fulfillment of that little voice that said to me I think you'll come back so it was wonderful and it wasn't hard at all maybe mm -hmm. it would have been harder had I come back to where I'd taught for 19 years um that might have been more difficult. Um, but no, it, it actually was a blessing because 
uh, I understood the university, I understood the sort of students, but also it was because of where I came from as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it's been um, the most incredible experience that I could have had and at the right university. It's mm -hmm. been wonderful. So you indicated a pen was the object that represents your journey from learner, uh, learner and leader. Yeah, um, probably not this one, which was <laughs> a gift from students' parents many years ago. Um, but it's interesting, it's actually a fountain pen. And when I was an undergraduate student, I had a fountain pen. I don't even know where it came from. And it was um, not a glamorous one like this, but from memory, I think you even had to dip it in the ink. And um, that pen had represented so much to me as a young person, um, I don't know why, but it was, um, I used to love to write with it. I used to love write my assignments because I went to uni um, more than 40 years ago, which was, you know, not the computer age. And uh, I guess it represented um, higher education, what can happen. And I love to write. I still love to write. And uh, any opportunity, I would um, really enjoy that. Probably um, anyone who's done law will tell you that doing law knocks that creative spirit out of you. But later in life, I've tried to get back that creative spirit and do things that, that use that. But at the time, that pen meant everything. And when I found this one quite a couple of years ago that I somehow put away, it brought it all back, I guess. And it's that love of learning and um, and a little bit the love of creativity. Well, that's, that's a great story. And continuing on stories, can you talk to us about what your experience as an undergraduate student and, and as a postgraduate student? Did you do your PhD full-time or part-time? Uh, a bit of both. Right, okay. Mainly part-time. So undergraduate without going into um, the somewhat distressing details. It was really difficult due to family circumstances, um, but got through it somehow. And then when I did my master's, I had a young family. And in fact, I think my son was born the year I finished my master's. Uh, and then not long after that, I did my PhD. So I've certainly never had that experience of, um, you know, parents uh, paying for your education and I've had to put myself through everything under very difficult circumstances and then um, did my master's part-time with young children and then um, PhD later on mainly as a part-time and, and a tiny little bit of full-time I think from memory I took long service leave to knock it off um, but pretty much part-time so it would be wonderful and I've always said when I retire I'll go back and do a degree full-time wouldn't that be great <laughs> <laughs> to actually be able to commit to, to something in that way. But, um, yeah, I've always been um, part-time and I did my PhD externally through the University of New South Wales mm -hmm. and that was, um, yeah, a really good experience. So when you reflect on your experience and then the experiences of the students that you now have, what, what are your observations about comparisons, um, improvements, reflections? Well, I think because of the background that I had uh, first in family and just really difficult, I think 
as a leader, you can relate to students. And there's many students at my university here who, you know, don't even think about coming to university. I was lucky in that even though nobody in my family had, I was really passionate and that's what I wanted to do and that's what it was always going to happen. But for a lot of our students, that's not the case and they've had enormous disadvantage. So I think um, if you don't come from a background where it was all given to you, you can understand so much better and you can help those who are going to come and do it really tough. And these days there are so many people doing it tough, particularly in our region here. So uh, quite a few of my executive team came from a similar background where they had to put themselves through uni, often later on in life. Uh, and I think we relate to students so much better mm -hmm. as a result. Obviously, we've all highly achieved or we wouldn't be where we are, so we can understand that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of us feel very strongly that uh, it's those students who haven't had the opportunity that we need to support mm -hmm. and we're able to do that so much better because we're already in that mindset. We understand what it's like and we see some, you know, incredibly difficult things, particularly with regional families and lack of access, lack of family support, all of terrible, terrible things we see. Mm -hmm. And we, um, I think, are able to have the patience and perseverance to help get them through, which is really important. You talked in the beginning about a love of learning. And I was watching you when you talked about that. And even now saying it, you are smiling. <laughs> can you Can you just elaborate how I mean, when I was teaching first years, in particular at Sydney University, but also at Griffith, you just wondered, was there a love of learning? Certainly when I was uh, doing PhD supervision, there was a love of learning. Mm. How, how can we re-engender that love of learning and the joy mm -hmm. and pleasure of learning? Mm. Um, I, I said before that when I see students, I have them come up to me and say, you taught me. They can't always remember what it was, but they remember me. And I like to think it's because of engendering that love of learning in them. I'm not saying I was necessarily their best teacher or that they remember that because I was passionate about it. Um, I used to run an elective. I ran a couple actually that I developed myself and the students would really want to succeed. And I saw my role as giving them the tools for that. So mm -hmm. I think as an educator, one of the best things we can do is engender that love of learning in our students uh, because, you know, they weren't there as an annoyance, as some some people seem to think. The students are there to um, not just give them the mechanical aspects of that particular degree, but to, uh, and, you know, not all degrees are a pleasure, and I wouldn't say learning law necessarily is the whole way either, but it's that ability to come in to access higher education and completely change your life in the way that mine did, completely changed. So when just building on that idea of changing students' lives and that the transformative effect of, of education for students, you would have a number of those uh, examples. Can you just give me a couple of, you know, how you've seen how it really has made a difference for students to complete their degrees because I was reading something earlier today about students in America are actually starting to stop attending university because they don't think it's worth the investment 
they don't particularly want a four-year degree anymore. They want to prefer a three-year degree. So, so what are you seeing that sort of resistance to the love and joy of learning, or are you seeing something different? Yeah, I think it's something different. So we hear some extraordinary students at graduations, for example, you know, we hear about people who have got a whole lot of little kids put themselves through uh, uni. I'm thinking of a woman I met doing nursing. She was working pretty much full time. Little children, I think she'd had one or two while she was studying. And this isn't an uncommon story. And was then graduating with that nursing degree so they could go and help other people. These are incredible examples of people who are not only going to transform their lives but transform others, and that is truly the transformative um, role of higher education. Um, I don't see so much of the other because our students here at the University of Southern Queensland are here because they really often battled to get here. Mm -hmm. They have... Um, you know, sometimes we've really had to help them along the way with, um, you know, how do you get into university? They probably had to battle parental objection in the case particularly of regional students mm -hmm. to actually come to university instead of go and help on the farm or whatever else it might be. So they've had to get over a lot to be here in the first place. They're often older because they weren't able to come straight from school. Mm -hmm. And to see them succeed in the way that we do is just amazing and there's no better feeling than watching that student graduate when you know their story mm -hmm. so when when you think about i've never taught in a regional university i've i'm a city girl no neither what, have I, to be honest <laughs> <laughs> but what what is it about regional universities and i i mean i guess you could call the university of canberra where i was interim dvc for four months a regional university what, what is it about regional universities that makes them a different experience for them than, say, going to UQ or QUT or Sydney or Macquarie? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, size, will we will always be smaller. Um, certainly in my university, we um, have students who come from every walk of life. We've got students who come from quite elite um you know, schools where they are coming here because they're wanting to get into, um, you know, they've always wanted to do engineering or they're really impressed by what we're doing in our space program and they're coming for those sort of reasons. So we see the same sort of students that would go to the University of Queensland, for example. Mm -hmm. And then we see a lot of mature age students who are um, having a very different experience. They are probably part-time, they're studying online because they can't come and access classes in the middle of the day. It's impossible when you think about it. I had someone the other day say, why are so many of your students mature age part-time? Why don't they come on campus? Well, you can't during the day if you're mm -hmm. working or have family responsibilities. So you need to be able to study at night or on the weekends. Um, and for those coming in uh, from the regions, from southeast Queensland, typically for our students, They'll often come and live on campus. So we've got three colleges where the students will come and live and work full time. And um, and they are, on the whole, lovely country kids who come in and have a fantastic experience, a real bonding experience on campus. So, yes, some of them do go to the big cities and 
um, those colleges, but there's many, many more students on those campuses. There's a lot fewer students because most of our students are online, part-time, mature age, but those who are on campus just have this wonderful, wonderful experience. They bond with each other. They become very attached to the university. They become very attached to their college. So it is, it's a different experience. I think it's more friendly. It's more welcoming. Um, and that goes for staff too. Our staff, I would describe them in exactly the same way. They're here because they want to be here and they are just lovely people to deal with. And I'm just so um, proud and impressed by our staff and how incredible they are. So you continually to continue to do well in terms of the student experience um, metrics. What is it that you do? Because you've also got, you know, one of the largest um, low SES participation mm -hmm. rates in, in Australia. So, I mean, one would look at that as particular challenges, but you're being incredibly successful. What's what's your magic? Yeah, so the students who are on campus um, have a wonderful experience because we have fewer students on campus. So it really is a very individual experience, small class sizes. The lecturer really does know your name. Yep. Um, and that's just by dint of smaller numbers. Online, where the majority of our students are, because we've been online for so many years, it must be close to 30 now. We were a very early adopter because of our regional status, because of the students out in Southwest Queensland who can't travel the four, five, eight hours onto campus to attend a class, even if they were full-time. It's just impossible. And if they can't afford to come on campus full-time, they have to stay where they are. So... Um, for all of those students and all of the mature age students who have to study on the weekends, um, we always had the methodology and the pedagogy there to study online and it's very interactive. It's They're not being sent um, a recording of a tute or somebody standing up at a lecture theatre. It's a very interactive experience and it's very different. So... Um, you know, it's tougher for those and inevitably the experience, the course experience results won't be as good for those students because they don't have that benefit of the on-campus. But I can honestly say it's as good as it can possibly be and that's because of our long experience. And the fact the lecturers, for them, online is just part of it. It's not something they're forced to do or it's unusual. It's just part of what we do. And the lecturers care really deeply about those students. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the key thing. They really do. They're not doing it because they, you know, and I've experienced this elsewhere where an online student is considered a, you know, a problem. Mm -hmm. They are actually core to what we do and highly valued. So what what are the challenges that you see for students in the current environment? It's incredibly difficult and like all, all you know, certainly all regionals, our numbers have dropped because of the need to go out and get a job, the cost of living and the ready availability of jobs with such a low unemployment rate. So uh, there's huge challenges at the moment in higher education and that means there's huge challenges in the future for the professions and for industry because we're not putting enough students through as a sector to meet the needs of industry and the professions. Um, and it's very difficult even if we could double our students, we probably still wouldn't have enough for the health the health needs of the nation and enough education students for the education needs of the nation. So we're at an incredibly difficult time, hence 
I think the the very welcome vision of the Minister for Education federally, mm -hmm. Minister Clare, to institute the accord process to look at all of these things. And on top of all of that, there's an aspiration to greatly increase the number of students coming from different backgrounds, mm -hmm. and that's going to add on the extra need as well. So we've got this huge problem at the moment, um, huge challenge of keeping up with demand and uh, and meeting the needs. But on top of that, I would say there's a, a worsening issue with expectations. Uh, and just harking back again to our regional students, it's very difficult to get them to think that you could go to university. If they've never had anybody tap them on the shoulder and say, this could be you, if they've never seen it in their family and rarely seen it in their community, how can they feel that they could go to university if they can't see it, if they haven't had a role model, if they've never had a mentor. So that's what we're seeing actually, sadly, is an increasing challenge. And even in some of our outer metro areas, we're seeing that as well. So if the student hasn't had that really critical role model, if they haven't had a parent or somebody else who they can see, um, how do they know what it's like to be an engineer? They they can often see the teacher or the nurse, which is mm -hmm. fantastic, um, but how do we get them even thinking beyond that? It's really difficult, and I think it's becoming worse. Does it require different sort of relationships with schools and the, the, the sort of the greater presence and visibility of the university within? I mean, your community is huge. So your community isn't just Toowoomba. You'll go out past mm. Scunderwindy, out past... Correct. Uh, out to Charleville and... Yeah. The other side um, of nowhere. Yeah. Um, the last couple of years and every year now, we're taking all the executive out on a regional visit. Mm -hmm. So year before last, we went way, way out as far as Charleville. Last year, we stayed a bit closer to home. And then we're listening to school principals. We're listening to... Um, the hospitals, we're listening to industry. So we all go out there, we do some things together and then we spread. Mm -hmm. And taking, so we we call it the uni comes to you. Yep. We go out there and we listen. We hear the stories about kids not having the opportunities. We hear the stories about the schools not being able to get enough. It used to be not get enough specialist teachers. Now it's not get enough teachers. We hear the stories of communities not having a GP. We hear all of this and we're able to then bring that back and try and help solve some of those problems. Obviously, we're not the government. We can't wave a magic wand, but there are a lot of things we were able to help solve. Uh, and the university then has that leadership role in that community and they know where to find us. If there's an issue, they can pick up the phone. We can send someone out to talk to that student or to work with them. I've helped some of them get um, appointments with government to go and talk to government about their issues. So there's so much that we can do. And we we take the view, as I did with a school principal last week, that we're here for you. We're here as a resource. But we have to go to them to say that because they're not necessarily going to come to us. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're working really closely. But we do think that the challenges are just as much as they've, they've always been. And the increasing levels of poverty that we're seeing in some of those communities um, has meant it's harder than ever before with student, students being able to even make the choice, even if they thought they had that choice, which many of them don't, um, they can't afford to make that choice. So it's really tough. 
So if there was one thing that you could change to support students, to get them into campus and more importantly, get them to complete their degree, mm. what, would, what would it be? It would be some mechanism of helping students to believe in themselves because it's mm -hmm. that lack of self-belief. If they just think they're never going to um, amount to anything and, that, and there's a lot of level of of despair in those communities as well as a lot of levels of youth suicide. There's a lot of really sad things happening. And if we can somehow, and this is a huge multi-pronged issue, but if we can somehow get students to believe in themselves, we'll be a long way to solving the problem. But along with that comes many things like more government funding and lots of opportunities. And it does all come down to funding. But I think it's that key thing of getting students to back themselves, and that's really, really difficult. So just in conclusion, what advice would you give to the younger Geraldine? <laughs> if Geraldine was a school leaver about to come back to university, what advice would you give her? Yeah, I thought about that. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that one. <laughs> So I probably wouldn't change anything despite how difficult it was. Um, I'd say stick with it. It'll work out in the end um, and just do your best. And that's some of the best advice I ever got. You just do your best. And, if it, and I say that a lot now. If it doesn't work out, um, you've done your best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And usually your best is pretty good, but you can't do any better than your best. Um, and the, I suppose the other piece of advice, which I've always said and talked to others about is grab the opportunities. It's got to be an opportunity that's working for you, mm -hmm. um, but don't pass up opportunities because too many people and, and too many women in my experience will pass up an opportunity. Now, it might not be the right time in your life. Um, there's times when you might be caring for an elderly parent, you might have childcare responsibilities, whatever it might be, finishing your PhD, it's not going to be the right moment for you. But other times it will be and don't, you know, don't knock that opportunity when it comes. And that's what I did. I grabbed every opportunity. I stuck with it. I always did my best. And the other good piece of advice, which I got very early on, was um, when you ask, people will usually say yes. So now I just shamelessly ask. And uh, invariably people say yes, because I'm not scared to, to ask. So whether it's a, all, all sorts of things. And uh, I think you have to learn uh, what I learned early on because it was uh, it was me. It all depended on me. Is that um, you have to be your own advocate and you have to learn from all your mistakes, and and keep going. Take the feedback, get some great mentoring, and off you go. So it's um yeah, it's been a long career now when I think about it, <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't luck. There was no luck in it. It was just really working hard and grabbing opportunities, but doing it all not because I was intensely competitive or wanted to get ahead of my colleagues. It was because I just wanted to do my best and wanted wanted to do my best to to help and and my passion for students and learning. So yeah. Well, I think that's a really positive way to end our conversation. But certainly what I've heard in our conversation today is you are a committed person to rural and regional education but you are really profoundly committed to ensuring students can be successful and I think if all our leaders do that and if students know that that's what the leaders do 
we can think more positively about the future than we might have previously. So Geraldine, thank you for giving me a bit over half an hour of your time today. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope you have too. Thanks very much, Julie. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And see you uh, in Canberra. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education. Candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change, and best practice in teaching and learning. Visit studiosity.com.